Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today, we have our second episode of our Ask a Fellow series, entitled Broken Down on Homolysis. We have a fellow with us today. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, guys. I'm Chen Jen. I'm one of the uh, hematology fellows at McMaster. I'm in my last year, and I'm very happy to be invited to do this podcast today. Great. So like every episode in our Ask a Fellow series, um, we'll start with a case. So uh, take it away. All right. So let's say you're seeing a 40-year-old woman. She's got bruising and some fatigue, uh, and you're seeing her with a referral showing a hemoglobin of 51, a platelet count of 75, white counts normal, 14, and her bilirubin's high at 45, mostly unconjugated at 35. And now her retics are high at 361, her LDH is 1,062, blood film is still pending. So what do you think your next step would be? Great. So I guess there's some stuff that's alarming for definitely anemia, um, but with all the other parameters, um, we're we're definitely worried about hemolytic anemia in this setting. Um, So why don't we dial back? What exactly is hemolysis? So hemolysis, essentially, the definition is just shortened survival of your red blood cells in your circulation. So normally your red blood cells will survive for about 120 days. Um, And you can think about hemolytic anemia as the red cells surviving for less than that, usually less than 100 days. And so you're anemic from the hemolysis if your rate of destruction of the red blood cells is exceeding the rate of the production of red cells. So really, hemolysis is just RBCs that are dying prematurely. Great. And so when somebody comes into the emergency department or we're worried about somebody with a new anemia on the ward, how do we tell if a patient has hemolysis? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And uh, one thing is, this is essentially a lab diagnosis. So your blood work, um, specifically your CBC and your peripheral blood film, is a great starting off point and really helpful. And I guess it's important to look for a hemoglobin trend and to see how acute the anemia is and what the degree of a drop is. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, One of my preceptors had told me, um, in the absence of bleeding, if your hemoglobin drop in a week is greater than about 10 points, um, then that could be a first indicator of hemolysis. So the classic teaching is that hemolytic anemias are normocytic anemias, kind of on the same line of bleeding. Um, is that is that generally correct, or is there something else that we should be looking for? Yeah, so um, it can be normocytic. Um, it can also be slightly macrocytic because of increased reticulocytes, um, so immature red blood cells, and they can be a bit bigger. So whenever I order blood work um, for something I want to work up, I like to think about what abnormalities I might see based on the pathophysiology. Can you take us through the pathophysiology of hemolysis? Sure. I mean, it's really simple. So you have breakdown of your red blood cells, and so you'll see increase in the products of this breakdown. And so on blood work, what that's going to look like is increase in lactate dehydrogenase, or LDH, and as well in bilirubin, um, so specifically unconjugated bilirubin. The bone marrow response would be to increase production in response to this increased destruction, and so that will be an increase in reticulocyte count. So these are immature red blood cells that are produced by the bone marrow. And uh, what about haptoglobin? 
So haptoglobin, it's a protein produced by the liver, uh, and its role is to bind free hemoglobin that can be in the circulation as a result of red blood cells that have broken down. Right. So I guess when we're looking at um, things that we should order for a hemolytic workup, then the important parts are going to be uh, LZH and bilirubin, specifically unconjugated bilirubin, um, a reticulocyte count, a blood film just to take a look at what the cells actually look like if they're being destroyed, um, looking for obviously a normal or macrocytic anemia, as well as um, a haptoglobin, which will be low in this case because it's binding up uh, all the free hemoglobin and then being excreted by the kidneys. Is that correct? So that's right. Um, And one other uh, point, as you mentioned about the blood film, um, do you know what it is that we're really looking for on that blood film? Yeah, so whenever we think about hemolysis, I guess um, something that comes to my mind, at least as a general internal medicine uh, resident, is looking for schistocytes um, as well as the size of the the red blood cells on the smear. That's right. And so um, schistocytes are fragmented red blood cells, and they can come in all shapes and sizes. Um, On a peripheral blood film, they look kind of jagged. And the significance of this is that that can be a clue to a group of really um, unique hemolytic anemias called the microangiopathic hemolytic anemias or MAHAs that are really not to misdiagnoses because they can be quite fatal. So the way that schistocytes are typically reported uh, would be on a scale of 1, 2, 3, 4 or from mild, moderate to avert. And even mild schistocytes that are reported in the right clinical setting can be a significant finding. So in terms of uh, schistocytes number, you talk about how they're typically graded. Is there sort of a percentage or a number that's considered significant, or is it really just the presence of schistocytes at all that are concerning? That's a great question. Um, I think the best answer is really, it depends, but the presence of any schistocytes in the right clinical context can be a concerning finding. By definition, it's 1% or greater. Um, so if there's somebody that you're suspecting hemolysis, the thing to do would be, if there's reported schistocytes, to call the lab and see if they can do a manual review. So have someone actually take a look at that film, or sometimes that's the hematologist on call who will take a look at that themselves. So just to review then, what we're looking for in terms of hemolysis is um, an increase in unconjugated bilirubin, an increase in lactate dehydrogenase, increase in reticulocyte count, um, a decreased haptoglobin, and schistocytes on the peripheral blood smear may or may not be present, and all of this within the context of a normal macrocytic anemia. So that's a great summary. Um, And uh, I'll add that Uh, If you're seeing the presence of anemia, thrombocytopenia, and uh, possibly schistocytes, that should immediately trigger in your brain to think about a group of conditions called MAHAs, or microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, and these can be potentially fatal if unrecognized and untreated. And we'll talk a little bit more about what those are later on. Okay, so let's say we've looked over all of the labs. We're suspecting that somebody might have a hemolytic anemia. What are some of the features on a history and physical exam that uh, we should look for? Okay, so on history, you're going to be looking for symptoms of anemia. So any fatigue, um, any shortness of breath on exertion, palpitations, presyncope. 
as well, you're going to be looking for uh, potentially a history of jaundice or their skin or eyes turning yellow. You can also ask questions that might hint at the etiology. So you can ask about fevers and um, any confusion or neurologic changes. And what I'm hinting at is TTP, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. It's important on any um, hematology assessment uh, for uh, these conditions to ask about bleeding and bruising, and as well for any perceived possible new masses, lumps or bumps that the patient may have noticed. You can also ask about, finally, uh, potential triggers, so any recent illnesses, what medications that they have been on, and any changes to that. On the physical exam, you're going to be uh, doing a full head-to-toe exam, as well as looking at the skin, um, looking for um, any potential ulcers, any lymphadenopathy, uh, and uh, any organomegaly, such as hepatosplenomegaly. And I guess the other things we're looking for on exam are obviously any clinical signs of jaundice that you might notice, any of the bruising um, or significant uh, bleeding um, or rashes that you mentioned before. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And as well for anemia, you know, your first clue can be your vitals and any postural orthostasis. So um, all those together would be a part of a really comprehensive initial history and physical. So I've heard of sort of multiple ways to classify hemolysis. The way that I typically think about it is intravascular versus extravascular hemolysis. Um, But are there ways that you like to think about it uh, with regards to how to classify the type of hemolysis that's happening? Right. So there's many different classification schemes. And the one that you're mentioning, intravascular versus extravascular hemolysis, uh, refers to where the breakdown of the red blood cells is occurring. So in intravascular, um, it's happening within the blood vessels in the circulation. And in extravascular, it's in the reticuloendothelial system, or RES, which is essentially liver and spleen. So how, how do you like to think about it? One other approach that I actually like to use is using the DAT. Uh, and I'll talk about what that is. Essentially, I break down hemolysis into DAT positive or DAT negative. The DAT has a lot of names, so the Coombs test, direct antiglobulin test, um, and it's been uh, something that can be a bit of a confusing test to wrap your head around. So I like to think about it really simply as the DAT will help you differentiate between immune causes, which are DAT positive, or non-immune, which are DAT negative. So in immune hemolysis, the red blood cells are coated with antibodies. And so in order to detect the presence of these antibodies in the lab, what we do is add something called the Coombs reagent to these red blood cells in a suspension. And because this Coombs reagent contains anti-human antibodies, they bind to the red blood cells coated with antibodies and you get a reaction where the result is red blood cell agglutination. So what about the indirect Coombs test? So the indirect Coombs test is not a test that I routinely order to work up hemolysis. What it's going to do is going to be looking for red blood cell antibodies that could target foreign red blood cells. When that would come up would be in, for example, prenatal testing to look for any antibodies present in the maternal circulation that could be directed against fetal red blood cells. So in transfusion medicine, um, this can be thought of as the cross-match. So that's to make sure the recipient doesn't have any antibodies directed against the future donor's red blood cells. This is done to reduce the chance of a possible hemolytic transfusion reaction. 
So now that we've talked about uh, the mechanism of the DAT testing and the indirect um, anti-globulin testing, um, can you give us sort of the top three diagnoses you consider uh, when you have a DAT positive or a DAT negative result? Sure. So there are many causes under each category, but the top three that I would say for a DAT positive hemolytic anemia would be warm or cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So that's because of the presence of antibodies coating the red blood cell surface. Another one is alloimmunization, uh, which is resulting from a transfusion reaction where uh, there was incompatibility between the donor and the recipient red blood cells. And the last would be potentially drug-related. And in terms of um, DAT-negative causes, the one group of DAT-negative hemolytic anemias that are really not to miss are the Mahas. As mentioned before, So these are medical emergencies where this is typically intravascular hemolysis. So the blood cells are being broken down in the circulation. And so you can see schistocytes and we talked about the other lab findings. And and these include um, conditions like TTP, HUS, HELP, DIC. And we'll talk a little bit more about what those are. So there are other causes such as mechanical shearing of the red blood cells from uh, cardiac prosthetic valves. And there's a group of inherited red blood cell defects, so problems intrinsic to the cell such as hemoglobinopathies, um, so your sickle cell disease, thalassemia, as well as problems with the red blood cell enzymes, such as having a deficiency in G6PD. And they're also a group of conditions um, because of defects in the red blood cell membrane um, that causes conditions like hereditary spherocytosis and lymphocytosis. So going back to our case, we've uh, done a little bit more blood work. Um, So remember, you have a 40-year-old woman who's complaining of fatigue, bruising over her arms and legs. Uh, She's uh, got some pallor as well as some icterus. Um, And her labs showed a CBC with a hemoglobin of 51, elevated bilirubin, uh, mostly indirect at 35, reticulocytosis of 361, um, and LDH of uh, 1,062. And you notice on her CBC as well that she's got a thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 75. Her creatinine is elevated at 260 from a baseline of 80. Her INR and PTT are within normal levels. Her fibrinogen is 5, which is actually mildly elevated, and her troponin is negative and her beta HCG is negative. You get her blood film back and it shows moderate schistocytosis, and you now go to reassess your patient and she's confused. So at this point, you have anemia, thrombocytopenia, and schistocytes. So alarm bells should be going off that this sounds like a maha, and so you have a couple of next important steps. So as mentioned, the mahas are medical emergencies. So uh, here's where you have a bit of an alphabet soup of diagnoses. You have TTP, HUS, DIC, HELP, and really what's going on in microangiopathy is that there are microthrombi being deposited in the circulation, And these are causing shearing and breakdown of red blood cells. So first, TTP. This is the diagnosis that cannot be missed. So classically, we describe a pentad of symptoms. And so these are fever, neurological changes, thrombocytopenia, anemia, specifically microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and renal failure. So the important thing is that 
it's very rare that patients will have all of these signs and not having the pentad does not mean that they do not have TTP. And so what happens in TTP is that there's a deficiency in an enzyme called ADAMTS13. And ADAMTS13 is going to cleave von Willebrand factor into functional von Willebrand factor units. And when this enzyme is deficient, you have giant von Willebrand factor multimer circulating that's mediating the microthrombi deposits and subsequent hemolysis. By definition, TTP is when there's less than 10% of ADAMTS13. And it's important to order the ADAMTS13 at the initial onset where TTP might be suspected. The other condition is HUS or hemolytic uremic syndrome. And the microangiopathy here is caused by the shiga toxin, uh, which is from E. coli, specifically O157H7. That's damaging the endothelial cells, leading to platelet aggregation and your microthrombi depositing. The clue that can differentiate between HUS and TTP is that typically there's more renal failure in HUS, and there's also classically GI symptoms because of the E. coli. So in this case, it would be important to ask about symptoms of any diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and there can be bloody stools as well. And then one other important entity in MAHA would be DIC, so disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. So in DIC, you would see prolonged INR and PTT, um, indicating the coagulopathy, and typically the fibrinogen is low. But a low fibrinogen is not always necessary for the diagnosis because fibrinogen is actually an acute phase reactant, so it can be falsely normal or elevated in DIC. And so the important thing to remember is DIC is a symptom, and you have to look for an underlying cause. And the causes can be infection, trauma in the postpartum setting, or malignancy. So there's two main tenets of treatment of DIC, and one is treating the underlying cause, and another would be, if there's bleeding, supportive treatment with transfusion. So the targets that we typically use are to keep a fibrinogen above one by transfusing cryoprecipitate, as well as with FFP if there's a grossly abnormal INR, and you can also transfuse to keep the platelet count above 50 uh, and hemoglobin above 70. I guess we should mention here that there's some other things in um, the realm of MAHAs, including HELP, um, which if you spell it out, represents hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, which typically occurs in the setting of pregnancy, um, malignant hypertension, and then uh, also vasculitis. But um, that's beyond the scope of this podcast today. So going back to our case, um, and as you said earlier, the presence of hemolytic anemia, which we have based on our laboratory parameters, uh, thrombocytopenia, as well as schistocytes, uh, raises the concern for a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA. And because she also has some renal failure and confusion, that kind of points me to the pentad of TTP. Um, so, you know, we send off the Adam TS13 now early, um, but it's not back yet, and sometimes I think it takes a while to come back. So how do we treat this? So uh, exactly like you said, the Adam TS13 isn't a test that's going to come back right away, but it's important to initiate early treatment, even on speculation that this could be TTP. So the definitive treatment of TTP is plasma exchange or PLEX. And how this works is it's going to remove the antibodies attacking ADAMTS13 in the patient's serum and will replace ADAMTS13 by infusing at the same time 
donor plasma, which should contain Adam TS13. In the setting where you might not uh, be able to arrange for urgent plex or you have to transfer another center, um, does plasma infusion work then? So it's a temporizing measure where with the plasma infusion, you're only replacing the Adam TS13, but you're not removing any antibodies from the patient's circulation. So the definitive treatment is still urgent plasma exchange or plex. In the meantime, you would want to arrange for a way that plex can be done, which is through a apheresis or a dialysis catheter. And as well, these patients can be very sick and can potentially be unstable, so they need to be admitted to a monitored area in the hospital. And what about transfusions in the setting of Mahas? So a Mahas platelet transfusion is typically contraindicated. Um, it can worsen the hemolysis, and there's studies showing increased risk of death with platelet transfusions in the setting of TTP. Some rare exception could be if there's any life-threatening bleeds like intracranial bleeding. And as far as red blood cell transfusions, I would transfuse this patient uh, to normal hemoglobin targets, uh, especially if there's any clinical signs and symptoms of anemia. So typically that's to a target of 70. So thanks for going through this topic with us. Obviously, it's a very complex and um, involved topic, um, and I'm sure our listeners are going to find it very helpful. Can you give us a few takeaway points just to summarize the most important things that we should um, be thinking about when we suspect somebody has hemolysis? Sure. So number one, hemolysis is a lab diagnosis, uh, and it's important to recognize and identify hemolysis based on your labs. So this would be um, elevated reticulocyte count, LDH, unconjugated bilirubin, and decreased haptoglobin. And number two, there's a myriad of causes. So you can pick an approach that you like, but I like to use that negative versus that positive. And that may be one that is helpful clinically because you can order a Coombs test and then that can guide your next steps. So number three, don't forget your mahas. So microangiopathic hemolytic anemias are medical emergencies. You do not need to have more than anemia and thrombocytopenia to suspect it, make sure you're getting a blood film and you're ruling out the presence of red blood cell fragments or schistocytes. And number four, these can be complex and difficult conditions to manage, so make sure you're involving hematology early on. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internet Work on Hemolysis entitled Broken Down. This episode is recorded and written by Dr. Chen Chen Hu, Hematology Fellow. This episode was recorded and produced by Dr. Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas. Music production by Lachman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.